Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, as always, thanks for listening. Dr. Christina Dielli Conright is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and a researcher at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Her research uses an exercise-as-medicine approach and is focused on testing personalized exercise programs to improve cancer outcomes, especially breast cancer. At the 2023 American Association for Cancer Research Annual Meeting, she gave a presentation entitled Resistance Exercises-Medicine, Applications to Improve Health and Cancer Outcomes. She joins us today to discuss the research. Dr. D.L.E. Conright, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So to start, tell us how you came to study exercise as medicine. Where did that come from? Sure, sure. That's a great question. And and quite frankly, a personal question. I'd always been uh, very active in different types of physical activity. I was a dancer growing up as a child, did sports recreationally through high school and through college. And so movement has always been quite a big part of my life. That was inspired by my parents who were also quite active. And so when I realized that studying things like kinesiology, which is the study of movement, is such a thing in college and tying that into biology, I was really turned on to focus on on that area. And even more so when I learned that there was a relationship really driven by epidemiologic studies that showed that physical activity can reduce both the risk and the recurrence of certain cancers, then I really started to put the pieces together that this could be something that I could build a career off of. And importantly with that, as as I've been building my career, I've really been inspired by the patients that we're able to impact directly because my lab does do supervised exercise intervention. So we're working very closely with the patients on a day-to-day basis. And so it is very inspiring. Oh, that's great. Now, I have read a number of studies showing that exercise can help ease breast cancer treatment side effects like fatigue, bone and joint pain, as well as improve people's sleep and their emotional and mental health. So are there specific aspects of how exercise can help that you've studied? And have you found any new benefits as you're conducting your work? It's a great question as well. Yes, we have studied many of the symptoms and side effects that you mentioned, but fatigue, we've studied osteoporosis, sleep, emotional, mental health. We've also studied metabolic dysregulation, which in other words is different biomarkers in the blood that are related to developing diabetes and heart disease. This is really the the, the crux of our lab because for early stage cancers in particular, individuals are often dying from heart disease rather than their cancer themselves. And so we like to use exercise to offset these other comorbid conditions, such as diabetes and heart disease, and focus on on things such as insulin resistance, body composition, such as how much muscle an individual has, how much fat an individual has, which those are drivers to diseases like heart disease and diabetes as well. Um, Other things that we've looked at, you know, we have focused on some studies looking at at muscle and its strength, cardiorespiratory fitness, or really that ability to do aerobic fitness, other very functional type of measures such as gait speed or how quickly an individual can walk, how well they can do their activities of daily living, 
We've also been really interested in biomarkers related more directly to the tumors, doing interventions earlier on, meaning very soon after diagnosis, before surgery, which we call that prehabilitative exercise. Also importantly, we've been looking at cognitive function and really tagging into what's often referred to by patients as chemo brain and thinking about ways that we can prevent that by intervening with exercise during chemotherapy. And also using that not just to prevent chemo brain, but also potential neurodegenerative diseases that occur way later on down the line, perhaps as a result of chemotherapy. So we do study quite a bit, quite a plethora of outcomes, as, as, you, can, as you can imagine. Uh, and, and we also manipulate the timing of the exercise, as I was alluding to earlier, prehabilitation exercise before surgery or before treatment, exercise during treatment, and then, of course, exercise post-treatment or post-cytotoxic treatments. And I'll be honest with you, to date, we have not had an, a negative study yet. Generally speaking, so long as the participants in our studies are adherent, meaning that they, they adhere to the exercise we're asking them to do, then the results are always positive. Oh, that's fabulous. I, I want to ask a follow-up question about the prehabilitation exercises before surgery or before, say, chemotherapy. What is the goal of that? To make recovery faster, better? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So the idea is that training an individual up for the event. So if, if we sort of equate this to an athlete, for example, you know, if you're getting, we'll take the Boston Marathon, for example, as it's coming up this Monday here in Boston, uh, you know, you're going to train the body physiologically to prepare for such an event. And in, in a case like a marathon or some type of competitive race, it, it's almost like a trauma to the body. You can't just run it, go out and run it without preparing for it physiologically. I guess you can, but maybe not as safely. And, and similarly with, with chemotherapy or surgery, it's important to train the body up to be able to withstand treatments better and keep the body stronger or, or, or promote the body to become stronger before treatment so that the body can withstand the treatments in a, from a better starting point, if you will. So our premise is that we're giving the individuals an advantage. They become stronger, they become more fit, and then that way they can carry that into their treatments and, and feel better and withstand the treatment better. You're exactly right, reducing hospital stays, reducing rate of infection, uh, hopefully reducing treatment toxicities, et cetera. Oh, that's that's fascinating. But it makes complete sense. Like you said, um, surgery, chemotherapy, they are insults to the body. So if you prepare your body for them, you're likely to have a better outcome. Mm -hmm. I like it. I like it. Um, I also want to say, I think all of us know deep down somewhere in our hearts that exercise is good for us. But a lot of people have a hard time, especially if they're recovering from surgery or some other treatments or they're having side effects. They have a hard time doing the exercise or sticking with the exercise, especially if somebody, say, is older and hasn't exercised in a while or has never exercised at all. So how do you help in your studies? How do you help people get started? It's a great, great question. So important because we want people to feel encouraged to exercise and not discouraged. And what we do in our research, and, and perhaps if time permits, I can speak to maybe from more of a lay perspective where individuals are not enrolling in clinical trials. But what we do in our research is we derive and deliver what we call orientation sessions. 
Uh, first off, as you as you likely know, and the audience probably knows, for any type of research study, the patients go through a consent process, just like they would for surgery. We go through with them the specific details of the study, what's entailed, et cetera, and we do it in quite amount of detail, allow active listening, questions, et cetera, so that they understand what they're going to be signing up for. In addition to that, what we do is for these orientation sessions, whereby we take the patients through exactly what to expect during the exercise, how to use the equipment, how long the sessions are going to take, how to do the exercises. So it, it's really giving them a quick snapshot of what the session is going to look like, but it's taking a little bit more time and caution and that we allow for questions, explain exactly what we're doing before just throwing them right into a session where, you know, they're they're heavily breathing or feeling discouraged because the you know muscle burning pain from resistance exercise is too extreme, et cetera. So we ease them into it very carefully, very slowly. We also use an approach often referred to as exercise progression. In other words, we start at a certain level relative to the patient's baseline fitness, and we slowly and gradually progress from there. And that prevents individuals from becoming injured, from a psychosocial standpoint, it prevents them from becoming discouraged or too fatigued from the exercise. And it really helps physiologically their body to respond linearly to exercise so that they don't plateau. Um, so for example, if we were going to do aerobic exercise, maybe we start somebody at 20 minutes, three times a week with their heart rate at perhaps 40% of what their maximum heart rate might be. So that would maybe be low end of the moderate intensity and then two weeks later, we might go to 45%, two weeks after that, 50%, two weeks after that, another 5%, et cetera, just depending on the study and what the goal is. And again, that allows the patients to ease into the exercise safely, but then also to continue to stimulate, stimulate their body physiologically to respond to the exercise. So having that progression in place and then also taking the time to do orientation sessions where, if you will, it's really like a tour of what their exercise sessions are going to look like. Um, I think are really, really important. Lastly, I'll just add that our study, our, our research lab in particular, uses an exercise paradigm with supervision. So all of our exercise session, sessions, excuse me, are supervised by exercise trainers. And in doing, using that type of a paradigm, we are there one-on-one -on -one to support the patients with their needs. Modifications, maybe if they're experiencing in excess of chemotherapy side effects on a given day and the exercise needs to be modified so that they're still doing something and they're still showing up and coming with us, but it, we might ease back a little bit in order to accommodate that. Um, it also builds a relationship from a psychosocial standpoint. Patients become very motivated when they know that they're meeting with somebody to do the exercise with almost similarly to personal training or hiring a private coach. Um, so all those different types of um, supports are in place in order to encourage people to get started. Great. Now, what about somebody who's not in a study? <laughs> yes. um, yeah, because certainly that all sounds fabulous. And I know research shows that if you work out with a person or a trainer, you're more likely to do it and stick with it because you've got somebody counting on you. But if you're one person alone and you haven't exercised before and you want to get started, how do you how do you do that? Yes, that's difficult. <laughs> not impossible. Not impossible. Um, you know, there's there's a number of things that I recommend for people to get started. First of all, 
something is always better than nothing. And I think that's really, really important to keep in mind because if we if we keep referring back to exercise guidelines for cancer survivors, which are 150 minutes of moderate aerobic exercise per week or 75 minutes of mo- of a vigorous, inten- vigorous intensity exercise per week plus two resistance exercise sessions. I mean, just the amount of time that it took me to say all that. And <laughs> yeah. that can be very discouraging. Another way to look at it is 30 minutes per day. Um, you know, no matter which way you spin it, it can be quite daunting for people to think, oh, I have to do all of this in order to prevent cancer, all of this in order to maybe survive longer, things like this. So we just encourage patients to keep moving, do something is better than nothing. There's, and quite honestly, there's quite a bit of literature that's coming out now to support even just interrupting sitting time per day is going to be impactful on mortality and other cardiovascular disease risks. Um, because, you know, we're in an age of technology now, especially post COVID where you can, you know, you could be on Zoom or, or different types of video chats all day long without really ever having to get up. Um, and so first and foremost, something is better than nothing. Move more, sit less, uh, and consistency is really, really key. I think beyond that or deeper than that is finding that motivating factor. So as we know, exercise is a behavior, just like food consumption. It's also a very personal journey for many, many people. Um, Some people really like it. Most people, to be quite honest, don't really like to exercise. It takes time. It can cost some money. And it really can just depend on what knowledge an individual has on how to exercise. And so finding that motivation and then combining that with what resources do you have at your disposal? So there's always going to be people who might be more motivated than not to do group exercise. Join a facility where they can do group exercise at a certain time and that holds them accountable. So they're motivated by working out in a group. I always encourage people to maybe find a buddy or individuals may be motivated by a pet if they walk their dog or walk their animal. Um, But finding that motivation piece is really, really critical. And that is not a one size fits all approach. It really depends on the person. I can tell you from our observation of patients who finish our studies and and re-enter into the real world, if you will, that oftentimes doing something like walking very consistently that doesn't cost a lot of money is is generally quite sustainable. Um, And so I think finding something, again, that you can go back to and be consistent at is is so, so important. Because what we don't want to happen is for an individual say, okay, well, I have to feel like I have to join a gym or buy a Peloton or do something very high end and maybe do it for a little bit, realize it's not sustainable, and then just go back to being sedentary. And so finding that motivation, finding the resources. And I will say, we also have reported that the number one barrier to exercise, regardless of race, age, diagnosis, et cetera, but what patients tell us is their number one barrier is lack of time. And this is a really hard one because yeah. as an exercise physiologist, I can't necessarily carve out time for everybody and bottle it up for them, but it is it is a game of give and take a bit. Um, so finding when in your day do you have time to do this? Maybe you break it up morning, lunch, after dinner time. Um, I, I know quite a bit of, of professionals in my, in my field of work who do it early in the morning before they go to work, but for some that disrupts sleep. And they may not want to do that. Um, so it, it's a it's a complicated question. I don't have a straightforward answer for you. It's more just thinking about resources, finding that motivation that gets somebody going, 
day to day and just sticking with it and not overthinking about, oh, I didn't get my 30 minutes today or I didn't get to 150 minutes. Just doing something is going to be better than nothing. Yeah, that makes that makes good sense. I do want to ask, what about women who are worried about exercise either triggering or making lymphedema worse? That seems to be a fear for a lot of people. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and rightfully so. As we all know, there was the the PAL study that came out many years ago now led by Katie Schmitz that was was really the inaugural study to demonstrate that specifically resistance exercise was not going to be harmful or exacerbate lymphedema. And, and that still holds true. We assess lymphedema throughout all of our breast cancer studies more as a safety measure to basically confirm and sustain those results of the PAL study and to ensure that that the exercise we are prescribing is not harmful, even though we know it's not going to be. We We like to continue to assess it really exercise can be very beneficial for lymphedema. You know, the lymphatic fluids in the lymph system are going to move with exercise, especially with upper body movement. A really key factor though, is to making sure to, as I was referring to earlier, to progress exercise very slowly. So not jumping in and thinking that you need to lift very heavy weight to to really strengthen the arms or even the legs from the get-go, but thinking about starting probably a little easier than capable of and taking about two to three weeks in between increases in the amount of weight that is lifted. Um, And as long as that progression is done slowly and safely, then there should not be any concern about lymphedema. And in fact, that exercise should actually be quite beneficial. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Very good to know. And I do want to ask too, does the type of cancer or the stage of cancer matter when it comes to exercise. So in your studies, if someone's been diagnosed with metastatic disease, does their exercise program look different than someone who's been diagnosed with early stage disease? Or is it really based on a person's age and their level of fitness? Mm -hmm. So I'll answer this first from a research standpoint. From the research we do in our lab, I would say it only differs depending on what our goal of a study is. So as as an example, we have a study ongoing now in individuals with metastatic pancreas cancer, and our goal is to maintain or preserve muscle mass in a population who often sees quite a bit of muscle wasting as they go through chemotherapy. So in that sense, we are doing resistance exercise. We actually happen to be also doing a protein supplementation with that as well. And that program is going to look very different than, let's say, early stage breast cancer intervention, where we might be intervening for diabetes risk because we might do more aerobic and resistance exercise for that outcome related to diabetes. So from a research standpoint, it really depends on what we're trying to target specifically within the patient population. From just a very more broad uh, survivorship standpoint, I would say no, it doesn't. It, it it depends more on what an individual is capable of and perhaps more what their goals are. Um, some people do have goals that might streamline them a little bit more towards weightlifting. Maybe they want to build muscle mass. We see this a lot in our prostate cancer studies where men are on ADT, where they see qu- androgen deprivation therapy, where they see quite a bit also of muscle wasting, um, especially with that lack of testosterone stimulation to the muscle. So maybe there's more of a resistance training focus on their exercise program than on the aerobic exercise side of things. 
Um, but again, it is all love relative to their level of fitness. So I would say that doesn't necessarily need to look different, but it might based off of from a research standpoint, one, the goals of the research or two, from just a broad survivorship, you know, from any individual looking to exercise, it might be based on their personal goals. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and finally, I want to ask uh, about resources for people if they're out there listening and they want to get started. Um, you know, are there online things? Does it make sense to try a couple sessions with a trainer to get started and perhaps assess goals? What would you suggest? That's also a fantastic question. A couple of things that I would suggest. You know, I do think that knowing how to exercise properly and getting the information, even for just building self-efficacy so that somebody feels confident going out and taking on exercise, then hiring a trainer, if possible, might be a good start. But that's generally not sustainable. Trainers can cost upwards of hundreds of dollars per session nowadays. Um, and again, that may not be sustainable. Some gyms, however, do have some introductory sessions with exercise trainers. Um, beyond that, uh, I, there's so many resources online now for free virtual exercise classes. Uh, for example, here at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, we have the Zakem Center. And within the Zakem Center, which is our integrative medicine center led by Dr. Jennifer Ligabel, there is a platform, if you will, of exercise videos that have been recorded since the beginning of the pandemic um, in a library forum that is free to anyone that can be are designed to be done at home. Another resource to so the American College of Sports Medicine that is actually a registry geographically. So it, on such a website, it's their exercises medicine website, you can actually put in your zip code and it's designed specifically for cancer survivors. And once you put in your zip code, it then populates a directory of exercise resources for cancer survivors. And I'm happy to share that link. That's um, great. And that at least gives an indication of kind of where to look in the area where one lives in, where there might be free or for fee exercise resources. Um, and it is updated regularly. It's just self-regulate or excuse me, self-updated by individuals who offer these types of programs that are asked to go onto this website to provide their information. Outside of that, um, you know, there's definitely local resources to also just look into naturally, you know, especially for breast cancer. There's a lot of fantastic dragon boat racing organizations out there that are really fun and very active to get involved with. As, as I'm sure the audience knows, there's also many different types of breast cancer walks. Those are also really great and fun to participate in. So really just digging in and, and looking for local resources just by simple Google search can even go a really long way. And then I'll, I'll just make a brief comment about equipment. Often exercise, especially resistance exercise, can get overlooked because of how daunting the equipment can be. Well, thanks to places like Amazon, <laughs> this type of equipment can, net, you know, can be delivered at your house for, for pretty reasonable cost, depending on your adherence and how much it's actually going to be used as opposed to just hanging laundry on. Um, but for instance, in, in our virtually supervised exercise studies, we actually send patients stationary bike, we send them adjustable dumbbells, and we also send them resistance bands. And all of that together is generally around $500, which is quite a bit of money. But if you think of that in comparison to things like Peloton or monthly subscriptions or monthly gym membership fees, so if individuals are motivated to work out at home, which again, is not going to be for everybody, 
Amazon's a great resource to find some affordable exercise equipment that's not heavy or clunky and and it's not going to be really high end or high cost. Um, so there's quite a bit that's that's really evolved over time, thanks to COVID, but even before COVID, just as a result of technology, where we've been, there's a lot more mobilization, if you will, of virtual exercise and exercise platforms, exercise apps, things like that, that are available for people. Oh, that's great. Dr. D.L.E. Conright, thank you so much. This has been so helpful and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, you can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.